0: Hi,
1: I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
2: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a great one in store today, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. We're going to talk about, uh, oh, getting and staying fit enough for serious adventures uh after 50 with adventure sports athlete and author Stacy Gold who shares how she came back from multiple injuries and kayaked 226 miles in the Grand Canyon in 12 and a half days. She talks about it in her new book, uh, Wild at Heart. And uh, in the middle of our three hour tour, we're going to talk with um, John Marshall from uh, Northwestern Universities, uh, an Associate Professor of uh, Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing, Communications, and more, um, and a prolific author. He has a new book called Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. Should be a very interesting conversation coming up in about an hour or so. But this hour, we're going to talk with um, an author that uh, just published uh, a book this last month um, that is a, a love story within a spy thriller within a historical novel called The Bucharest Dossier by William Maz. and William joins me by phone. Good morning William, welcome to the show. Good
3: morning, thank you for having me.
2: Um, you know I can't help asking just, just to uh, roll things out a little bit. Um, I, I've seen this book described and just described it in the intro as a love story within a spy thriller, within a historic novel. Couldn't you pick a genre, William? Well,
3: the <laughs> genre would be a spy thriller. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but as as in every good novel, it isn't just one thing. You know, uh, Shakespeare was uh, was writing... You know, crime thrillers in his plays, but they were also more than that. So I try to make it more than, than simply a spy thriller.
2: What about the historical novel part of this? Yeah. Um, that's that's something that's um, becoming more and more popular recently. And I've talked to a number of authors who who write almost strictly historical novels, and um, while they're fiction there there's just such a strong nonfiction component that they almost seem real um, what were some of the things that that you put into the book that that give it that historical novel feel
3: uh, well I did a lot of research on the Romanian Revolution of 1989 um, because it is a unique period in uh, the evolution of communism. In, in 1989, uh, all of the communist uh, satellite states had changed to democracies, you know, like, like East Germany, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, all except for one, Romania and Romania at that time was controlled by Nikolai Ceaușescu who had been in power since 1965 he was a strict Stalinist even the Russians despised them Gorbachev was in power then in Russia <clears throat> he wanted a kindler gentler socialism but uh, Ceaușescu was, wanted none of that uh he controlled the country to the point where um where there was a secret police listening to everything you said on the telephone, to everything you did, they had, you know, one out of four people in the country it was estimated was either an informant or a security agent. Uh, it was a terror-filled uh, period uh, in Romanian history. At the top of it was that Romania was starving. Um, And there were lines for bread, for milk, for everything. Um, The peasants is what they call the farmers. The peasants in the countryside didn't even have enough grain for bread. They would get on the trains to go to Bucharest to buy bread. And what did Ceaușescu do? Instead of giving them more grain, he instituted an internal visa system so they wouldn't get on the trains, (laughs) so they starved. so it was a, uh, a very tempestuous period to the point where there was a revolution that started in Timișoara, this city uh, in Transylvania. And nobody knows to this day how that revolution started, and whether it was a revolution or it was a coup. And um, that is one of the reasons I wrote the book to answer some of these questions.
2: Well, Uh, and I would suspect that that question, uh, William, whether it was um, uh, a coup or, or a rebellion would be answered by who was considered the governing body at that time. If it was still a Soviet Union, it was a revolution. If it was... If they were independent, then it was a coup, Well, right? At or, or is that too simple?
3: Yeah, because you see, I mean, at the time the government body in Romania was Ceausescu, okay, was the communist. Uh, he was uh, paranoid that Gorbachev would institute a coup on him. So his main fear was the Russians, uh, believe it or not. Because uh, we know that Gorbachev despised Ceaușescu because he was so bloody and so um, uh, strict a tyrant, Gorbachev needed to have all the communist states uh, change to a, uh, you know, a mixture of, of free enterprise and uh, communism. And, and Ceaușescu stood in his way. So we know that since 1985 there were plans by Gorbachev to start a coup in, in Romania and depose him. So uh, people now think that it was Gorbachev who started the revolution, but it, nobody knows because the, uh, it was the only bloody revolution that occurred. All the other countries changed peacefully through so-called velvet revolutions.
2: Well, so and I and what be. we're talking about here is uh, the the breakup of the former Soviet Union. That's right.
3: So Czechoslovakia had a velvet revolution and Poland changed uh, peacefully and so forth, but Romania did not. They needed a they needed a violent revolution and the the revolution started in up with very circumspect ways. There were snipers on rooftops that started shooting into the people and into the military at the same time. The snipers were later caught, a couple of them. They were from the Middle East, they were mercenaries. <clears throat> and so the question still remains, and they disappeared, by the way, after the revolution. So nobody knows who hired the snipers, nobody knows who started. The whole bloody um, violent uh, attacks in Timișoara, where about 600 to 1,000 people died, and then continued throughout the rest of the cities, killing probably uh, over 2,000 people at, at the, during the whole period. And then Ceausescu tried to flee through a helicopter uh, on top of the roof of the Central Committee building. He was eventually caught. The kangaroo court was established. Within an hour, the trial was over, and they were immediately executed, he and his wife. So those are the facts. The question is, who, who was involved in it? We know that there were generals involved in the coup, if it was a coup, but they, whether they started against them from the beginning or whether they joined the, the popular uprising is still up in the air.
2: I read somewhere, uh, I, I read something that compared elements of your story and um, the, the Romanian elements as as being akin somehow to what's going on in Ukraine right now. But listening to you talk about it, William, it almost sounds like it's sort of a mirror image where... Uh, Romania was trying to pull away from the Soviets and and establish its independence. Um, What's happening in Ukraine is uh, an annexation, more or less. Right.
3: Well, I think the analogies come in, uh, if you look at Russia right now under Putin, what's happening with Putin is that he wants to go back uh, to a period where he thought uh, Russia was at the height of its glory during the Soviet Union. You know, he stated that the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. So <clears throat> he is what they call a revanchist uh, figure. They, he wants to go back to a greater period to make Russia great again, and uh, by but he wants to do that by, of course. uh... invading other countries and creating the empire once more I mean this happened in history many times Napoleon uh, after the French Revolution tried to go back to the old system and made himself an emperor then you got Hitler trying to make Germany great again Um, and then you got Putin Uh, what it is is that the old old establishment wants to regain power again and we have some of that today in America there's Make America great again, unfortunately is part of that. It is the idea that there was a greater period bef- behind us where we want to return to it. Um, so in that respect, I wanted to show what does a totalitarian government look like and the book t- tries to show you know the life the daily life of people under such a regime uh, the poverty, the fear, and what we you know, we should ourselves fear if we allow democracy to uh, to uh, be taken from us. And so um, it has a lot to do with what's going on today, not only in Ukraine, because they know what Russian totalitarian lo- looks like. They lived under it. And, uh, but also all over the world. In Hungary, you also have uh, totalitarian uh, movements. And in other parts of the former Soviet uh, Union, uh, what you have in all of the former Soviet uh, Union states, uh, countries, is corruption. Corruption was part of the daily life of, uh, under communism. From the from the butcher who needed a bribe to give you meat, to the doctor who needed a bribe to even see you, to the top echelon who stole from the government and had offshore accounts. And what we're finding in Russia today is that's exactly what happened to their military. It is a hollowed-out military because so many people stole the money that was supposed to go to the, to the military, and they built yachts. And, and, you know, the irony is we no longer fear the Russian military other than the, the uh, nuclear weapons because we saw how hollow it is they can't even take over uh, Ukraine, never mind NATO. So, uh this is a big lesson in how these totalitarian systems work. It is based on stealing from government coffers and and uh, making a miserable life for their people and um and getting rich uh the top echelon getting rich on all of that. Um, so and I try to answer some of the questions. For instance, Ceausescu was known to have billions of dollars in offshore accounts. They never found them. And they've been trying. So I try to answer that in the book. Uh, I also try to answer the question of who started the revolution and how did it occur. So I base everything on history up until history. Can't answer it, and then I provide my own answer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> One of the nice things about uh, being able to do historic uh, novels yes. because you you can fill in the the gaps. Hey, William, I have to take a short break here, but I want to talk some more about the book itself. Um, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can Absolutely. talk some more? Okay, great. Absolutely. My guest is uh, author William Moss. The name of the book is The Bucharest Dossier, a spy thriller uh, within a historic novel in which a love story takes place. And we'll talk about all of that with William after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch it dial. Don't click that. Hello box. out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. ti double That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner Program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> Hey, welcome back everybody. We continue our conversation about a uh, new historical novel, uh, a spy thriller, if you will, set in America and Romania during the 1980s uh, called The Bucharest Dossier by William Maz And uh, William joins me by phone. William, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around and sorry to make you sit through all that.
3: Oh, no, it's a pleasure talking to you. It's a great interview. Thank you so much. Um,
2: William how did you get interested in writing, and, and then what attracted you to spy thrillers?
3: Well, uh, I started writing when I was uh, early in my education, in seventh grade of Mrs. Garbett's English class. She asked us to write short stories, and I started writing, and she liked them. She had me read them in class, I got applause, and I was hooked. So that's how it started. (laughs) (coughs) And then, um, yeah, I wrote throughout college. Uh, When I was at Harvard, I took a lot of writing courses. Uh, And then uh, I continued to write even during my medical school uh, uh, training. I finished a novel, which was uh, not published, but it was uh, picked up by uh, ICM, International Creative Management. they represented me, they liked the book. Knopf liked it, but they didn't like the ending. And I I was too busy to rewrite the novel at that time. So since then I've written uh, two others, and this is my fourth novel that was the first one that got picked up uh, by a publisher. So um, I have, you know, I consider myself a writer first, and then a, a doctor second. <laughs>
2: Are you able to write full time now or or I am. That's, Yeah, I, that's I retired good.
3: from medicine several years ago and uh I'm devoting my myself to my my passion now life's
2: too short. <laughs> I've talked to so many writers William that uh you know had to had to write in the wee hours of the morning yeah, at at either that. end of the day. Um, and on weekends and, and evenings and so on, you know, trying to squeeze in any writing they could while maintaining a full-time job to pay the bills. Yeah, well,
3: medicine is not just a job, you understand that. I mean, during residency, I couldn't write at all. It was I was up 36 hours at a time. Oh, Afterwards, um, you know, I would come home at 6 or 7 at night when I wasn't on call, and I'd have a light dinner, a couple of cups of coffee, and I'd write till midnight, and I'd get up at 5.30 the next day and start all over again. So that was, um, you know, my routine. Of course, that doesn't do a lot for your social life, so I had to squeeze
2: that in somehow too. <laughs> <laughs> when you, you know, we were talking in the last segment about uh, the historical nature of writing a historical novel and the research that goes into it and, and putting it in context of real events that are going on. But when you're doing a spy thriller, and this one is called The Bucharest uh, Dossier, um, how do you research that? Um, oh. <laughs> spy, spy agencies aren't real forthcoming with uh, right. fodder for... Um, Spy thriller well, novels.
3: I, I don't think I, I, uh, I show any secret methods in my book. I mean, I think we've, uh, through popular fiction, we've all uh, got an idea of, of what uh, agencies, spy agencies are like. I did research uh, on... A lot of things uh, that you can do in the public domain, if you really want to. Uh, also on how you know the uh, CIA and the KGB were functioning in Romania at the time. It, it was a wash with with spies, not from just those two countries, but from every other country, because Romania was the last country to remain still communist. So everybody was trying to to uh, influence it. So there's a lot, if you really um, dig, uh, that you can find out, including what guns they use. I've tried to be as authentic as I could. Not only that, but I have a lot of relatives that live there. So during the 80s, I spent a great deal of time in Romania, even though I was growing up here, uh, and I was visiting them. So I really got a good taste of uh, of the people and how they dealt with and how they kept their sanity uh, with their sense of humor um, and uh, just the misery of daily uh, life of trying to get food. Uh, I remember I was staying in an apartment above a butcher shop. At six in the morning, I heard a noise outside and there was a huge line. The butcher shop opened at seven. By nine o'clock, all the meat was gone. By 4 in the afternoon we have a knock on the door and a little boy is presenting us with a slab of beef which my relatives I didn't realize bribed the butcher to save for us that is how life was you either received bribes or you gave them everybody was involved in some sort of minor corruption just that was just part of life so i got to know all of that by visiting by Research by talking to people who were there during the revolution I was there about six months before the revolution about three or four months after the revolution So I saw all the bullet holes in the buildings and got first-hand You know uh, reports of what actually occurred so uh, You know it this isn't just doing research by reading. This was a first-hand experience
2: and with this um With this story that you're telling, did you have the story already in mind, or did you have characters that you came up with first and then decided what kinds of mischief they might get into?
3: Well, I knew that the background was the revolution. I wanted to write about that. And I know that the uh, top layer was a love story because I had attempted to write this love story of Pusha, the little girl that uh, my character left behind when he left Romania when he was eight. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to write it in a, in a way that, um, that did it justice, because I, there was a Pusha in my life, and she uh, had remained that kind of a mythical figure, as it did uh, for the character So I had those two elements, and I'm thinking, how do I put and intertwine all of these together, right? And I knew from reading about the revolution that there were all sorts of machinations in the background, people trying to do a coup to, you know, so there was spying, there were spy agencies, uh, there were plans. So I said, look, you have to write a spy thriller. That's the only way that you can somehow intertwine all of these elements together. And uh, so this is the first time I wrote a spy thriller, and it's not your typical spy thriller because it tries to follow all three threads. You know, the mysteries of who Pusha is and what happened to her, the mystery of whether the revolution was real or fake, uh, staged, and the mystery of what is my hero. Bill Heflin, who is a, an analyst for the CIA, who has his own KGB mole, which is unique among analysts. The mole's name is uh, Boris, code name. And how does Boris know so much about him, including his private life? So Boris is the puppeteer of this book. He pulls all the strings uh, of all three plot lines, and that is how I was able to intertwine them in a way that they all affected each other
2: William is this a standalone book or can you no. see yourself uh, building a series from these characters
3: well I've already written the the sequel it's ah. the publisher now it still follows the, uh, the the main characters of this book uh, this the second book is about It takes place in 1993 and it is the rise of the oligarchs So you see, in every former communist country, there are oligarchs, and not just Russia. Romania, uh, Hungary, Poland. What happened was, as the transition occurred from communism to capitalism and democracy, the people in power during that transition figured out how to steal. And so all of these companies that were made private uh, were taken over. By usually former security officials in Russia, it's all KGB people that took over Gazprom and uh, all these other companies that are made them billionaires. Same thing happened in Romania; all the former state contra- uh, companies were made private, and they ended up in the hands of former Securitate people. Securitate was the Security agency there, like the KGB. So all of these Securitate people are now billionaires. <clears throat> well, how did that happen? And how did? Th- so that's the second book.
2: What's the difference between the KGB and and what we read about now, the FSB?
3: Nothing. It's.
2: The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had a it's feeling, William, but. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it's, uh, it's the same thing happened in Romania. Uh, the Securitate was disbanded uh, at the end of the revolution, and, and a month later it was reformed in different uh, uh, names. It was broken up uh, into the external and the internal FSR, the, the internal. It doesn't matter. The same people, in fact, were put in place. So uh, <clears throat> uh, it's all for show. Uh, the, 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 the Securitate is still monitoring.
2: They uh, <laughs> just put a sign in front of the building that says, under new management. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> well, what happened also is that the Secretate, the uh, had all of these dossiers, which is why the book is called the Bucharest uh, Dossier. These are files that they kept on almost everybody in the country. And so they had a lot of things to blackmail them with. A lot of the people were, like I said, informants, which, which if, if that was made public now, it would uh, force them to, you know, to quit government posts and so forth. So they have all this information in these dossiers, which have never been made public, that they can blackmail them with. And that is part of the way that, part of uh, the method that they used in order to become wealthy. By, by blackmailing politicians, blackmailing judges. I mean, even the head of the church, the Romanian Orthodox Church, was a securitate informant, an agent, had been for 30 years. And he, uh, he admitted it after the revolution, and he quit, and he was reinstated like a year later. And, and, and because the same people are in charge of the government that were, in, that were communists before, now they're sworn capitalists. Because they become
2: billionaires, <laughs> <laughs> William, in the process of of writing this this um new book, this sequel to the Bucharest dossier right. um, did you get to the end of the Bucharest dossier and think to yourself, "But wait, there's more and and then start writing the second book, or did you have um an idea that these characters were going to uh, um, be involved in several different adventures, or at least two.
3: Yes, I I set it up in such a way that the end of the book leaves a few things unanswered, which I answer in the second book, but I also set up the characters that they can continue if I had the chance to... um, you know, if people are interested in having them continue. So um, in the end, uh I don't wanna give the you know, the ending away, but uh Heflin, my main character, survives and uh, and is ready for for further adventures. So, you know you you try to do that just in case it uh, people respond positively to it and they want more. You can't kill off your main character.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's usually a good idea if you're planning a sequel. Yeah. Um, William, in, in writing is kind of a solitary thing. Yeah. Um, what kind of feedback have you been getting from people, and do you enjoy interacting with people who have read your books and and doing, you know, book signings and, and uh book readings yep. and those kinds of things?
3: I I enjoy it. Unfortunately, I haven't. I mean, I've done a lot of um, Zoom meetings because of COVID. Of course, I've only done about a dozen or so. Um, direct signings and uh, I enjoy them a lot because you uh, you get into discussions and interactions about you know what's going on today what was going on in those days I mean uh, you know you can bring up anything i mean they brought up for instance uh, abortion uh the other day in one of my meetings and during Joschescu's time he uh, he outlawed all forms of contraception and abortion So what happened? Abortion became the only form of contraception women had, illegal abortions. All of my cousins and friends, they tell me they had over 30 abortions during their lifetimes. I mean, think about that. That was their only form of
2: contraception. Uh, How many many women did that involve?
3: Oh, I'd, I'd say a dozen that i spoke to that was so so
2: on the average two to three each
3: no 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 no. 30 per person really i'm talking about 30 per person i've spoken to over a dozen women so uh we're talking two to three a year in their prime because that was the only form of contraception i'm telling you and some of them got sick uh, one of them died, but most of the time they were performed by physicians in their private offices, and, uh, and that was it. Uh, there was no anesthesia involved, and that was a routine, a routine for women, okay? And Ceausescu, the reason he did that is the, there was no religion involved. It was he wanted to increase the population of Romania. Which you, you begin to hear today. There are some people that want to outlaw well, contraception and abortion. And I'm thinking, well, just read the damn book and you'll see what happens if you <laughs> do that. <laughs> see what happens if you do that. You're going to have women having two or three abortions a year. No, oh, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, that's, that's where we're heading if, if we
2: go down this path. That's that's an amazing statistic and yeah. and one that I hadn't even contemplated because um you know contraception um as as it's practiced in the US is very difficult to police.
3: Yeah. Well, that that uh, I mean I, I don't know if you've heard it but I've heard it that trying to do that that would be the next step. I mean, we can go into why. It is not really religious. Uh, It is the idea of increasing the the white population in America in order not to need immigrants. I think that's the the right-wing thought behind it. So think about that one.
2: Yeah, there you go. When you're writing uh, about that period of time, um, is it, And you're doing the research and you're talking to people from that period of time to give it some authenticity. Is is it difficult to get people to loosen up and share information? No, No,
3: No, because I had an in. I had all these Ah. relatives and their friends. So, uh, you know, a lot of things uh, in the book uh, that I explain occurred. For instance, there's a scene in the book in which I talked to a famous actor. I name him Gabor in the book, but um, his name is Rado Belligan, his real name, deceased now. And he, um, I went to the party uh, bringing Johnny Walker black bottles because they couldn't get any, and because I could, because I could go to the tourist shops, which accepted only dollars. That was one way for Ceaușescu to make dollars, our currency. I brought i was the, you know the life of the party because i brought the two bottles of johnny walker black and one of the actors uh he was like the lawrence olivier of bucharest at the time um he got a little tight and he started talking to me about <laughs> about the uh yeah about the uh, communist life there and he says bill he says there are more communists in new york city than there are in all of romania he says, there are no communists here. Nobody believes in communism, including all the way to the top. It's a totalitarian regime that wants to keep power. And you can call it communism. You can call it oligarchy. You can call it whatever you want. Um, uh, the, the communist patina is just that. Uh, nobody believes in it, and everybody can see the difference between how we live and how the West lives. So... Um, But a lot of propaganda goes into controlling the people, which we can also discuss. There was no other form of um, of media there except for government propaganda, television, newspapers, which is what you have in Russia today. Um, And so a lot of people didn't know. Some of them listened to the BBC and Voice of America at night. But if you were caught doing that, you'd go to jail. And uh, so uh, people, you know, want to believe in their government because it's, you know, the only choice they have. But uh, most people in the cities knew what was going on outside. Most people in the countryside did not. And that's where Ceaușescu's strength lay in the countryside, in the less educated people who believed... um, you know, whatever he told them.
2: Well, William, we're we're just about out of time, but I always want to give guests an opportunity to let Mm -hmm. listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. (laughs) Do you have a website you'd like to share? Yes,
3: Yes, it's williammaz, one word, williammaz.com, and that's my website, and it lists... uh, You know, where I'll be appearing, where you can get the book. You can get it on Amazon and everywhere else. Um, I'm having a problem with my second printing. I went through the first printing real fast. Well, now the printer is having supply issues like everybody else. So the second printing will be coming out uh, in June.
2: June. Yeah, I've been hearing more and more about those supply issues as it relates to publishing uh, recently um and and i hadn't heard anything about that until just recently
3: yeah everybody's having them and not only supply issues but personnel issues finding people to work so um yeah it's everywhere
2: well, William, thank you so much for spending your time with uh, me and the listeners this morning. Good luck with the book and uh, and the next book, and, and I look forward to see what else is coming down the uh, down the yeah. pike from author William Maz. the The latest book is the Bucharest dossier. Sounds like uh, like a fun one. It's a love story. In a Thank spy so thriller much. within a historic novel. I just love that phrase. <laughs> anyway, William, it's been a real treat. Keep up the good work. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Again, William Maz, the book is uh, The Bucharest Dossier. And um, anyway, we are going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in. They are WFOVLP, Our Voices Radio 92.1 FM Flint, a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions of my friend Paul Herring. And uh, as I mentioned, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. Lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. And tomorrow, we're going to talk to uh, Captain Mike Brown, who is one of the GOP candidates uh, for governor um, in the uh, August primary here in Michigan. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
8: This is our shot. Now it's up to you.
7: (laughs) Yo. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring
2: again.
4: So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed it's a robocall scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace they can make it look like they're calling from any number even from numbers of people you know my robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good but i need your guys help don't trust your caller id verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings if you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you.
1: Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor.
4: I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
8: In these days of the Cold War, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, has become one of our most valuable tools. However, many Americans have complained that too much of the CIA's activities have been kept secret. Tonight, as a public service, we are happy to be able to present the secret head of the CIA, who will answer all of your questions. To maintain the secrecy of his identity, he will be wearing a mask. How do you, how do you do, sir?
1: My name, Jose Jimena.
8: <laughs> <laughs> sir, you, you just told your name, what oh, are you going oh, to do oh, now? I, uh... <laughs>
1: What are you going to do now? Well, I guess I'll just take off the mask. But first I'd like to say something. What? Trick or treat. <laughs> sir, as a- uh, Oh, boy, sir. they're gonna really kid me about that back at the office, I think. Sir, sir- First sir. time I had this mask off. Do I need to shave up here?
8: No, no, <laughs> really. no. It has been said that spies work for the highest bidder. Would you tell me if that's true? What's it worth to you? <laughs> I I understand that uh, when you're a spy, you use very tricky devices. Is that true? You
1: understand that when you're a spy, you use tricky devices. Well, you see this cigarette that I'm smoking? Huh? You see that? Yes. It's really a gun.
8: (laughs) Come on now. You can't tell me that cigarette is a gun.
1: Oh, yeah? How would you like a shot in the mouth? Mm -hmm. We also, among other things, use very... Cleverly concealed cameras. Oh, really? Sure. See this front tooth here? See that? Yes. I that's see that. that's not really a tooth. That's a miniature camera. How does it work? Just press my nose. And and that'll take a picture? No, I just like people to press my nose. Actually, uh, my nose is a, a shortwave radio. And you work the camera by pulling in my left ear. What happens when you pull on your right ear? That turns on my nose. <laughs> well, that's... That's, that's absolutely... I m- think it's running now. nose. Yeah.
8: <laughs> that's amazing. A camera in your tooth. Uh-huh. I can't even see the little hole.
1: Well, that's because I was in the right half of the class. <laughs>
8: How did you get an idea like that, having a camera in your tooth?
1: Well, I had this film on my teeth. I thought, why let it go
8: to waste? <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I've heard that they do terrible things to gain information from captured spies. Oh,
1: boy. You heard about that, huh? Yes. I tell you, they do. Oh. You know, one time, they captured me. And they took these bamboo things, they put them underneath my fingernails and they lit fire to them. They were burning things under my fingernails. And then they came and they hit me on the shoulders, very hard, right there with the bony part where it really could hurt. And then they punched me in the nose and they punched me in the stomach. And then they took these pair of pliers and they squeezed me all over the place. And then they started to torture me. Did you talk? No, I was too busy screaming. <laughs> you must have had some uh, thrilling
8: experiences.
1: Oh, I can think of one now. You know, one time I was on a plane, you know, and I had these form and documents and I saw on the same plane, right down just a couple of seats from me, still in first class. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Or a couple of foreign power people, you see? They were there. So I took these foreign documents, and I went into the laboratory. But when I came out, they caught me with the documents.
8: Well, why didn't you get rid of them?
1: There was a sign that says, don't throw any foreign articles into the laboratory.
8: (laughs) Sir, who would you say was the greatest spy in history?
1: The greatest spy in history was Ludwig van Beethoven.
8: I didn't know Beethoven was a spy. You see how great he was? Yeah. As long as we have you here in front of these microphones, uh would uh, be all right with you if some of the people here in the audience ask you some questions uh, pertaining to the CIA. Would you answer all of their questions?
1: Yes, I would answer all of them. Oh, that's I'll very good. i am very happy. Would you, you please
8: uh, feel free to ask any questions you have?
1: How can we get a job at the CIA? Do you have any experience as a spy? <laughs> Not yet. Are you married? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You've had experience. <laughs> what should a spy do if he's caught behind the enemy water? If you are caught behind enemy lines, all you have to do is give the name, rank, and serial number of every soldier in the United States Army, um, where they are billeted, and, and how many bullets they have, otherwise they'll give you such a clock you won't even know Yes? Sir, what was the best kept secret of World War II? That it's still going on. I mean, if you hear anything whistling, duck? The CIA have a theme song. Excuse me? The CIA have a theme song. Yes. It's over where? <laughs> Yes, here you go. <laughs> How many copies would you like?
8: Well, sir, in conclusion, uh, as a spy, uh, do you have a code?
1: No, it just sounds like that because i got this radio in my nose. <laughs>
6: yeah. This was
0: another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
9: Well, you can't depend on anything. The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name. But here we are in America. Ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on? Our children going hungry, Things that turn to crime, and politicians know it's true, but they ain't got no time. We are in America, nothing seems to change, it just goes on and on and on There may be people who truly do care, they may be mighty but still they lack the key. It's all been burned Yeah, that's the life in America Should I still remain or just go On and on and on Now there make be people who truly do care maybe mighty but still in lack of I pray that someday this world Will finally declare
7: down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Come on. Come on, get out of here.